Welcome, Christian Israel patriots, white nationalists, and truth lovers everywhere. Pastor Eli James here. This is Voice of Christian Israel on Eurofolk Radio, February 12, 2023. And uh, I was in contact with Pastor Martins just before the show, but he's having connection problems again, rolling blackouts <laughs> Uh, when will the rolling blackouts come to America? I'll bet they're going to come here pretty soon. They're going to uh, you pull out every stop in order to make life miserable for us. But we we have to be prepared. In order to be one of Yahweh's children, you have to be prepared for the worst. You have to understand who the enemy is and how they operate, why they hate you, why they hate us in Christian identity. Yeah, uh, David Martin's just sent me a message on Skype. Network is very unstable. If it stabilizes for him, I told him to call back and call in. So we're going to do uh, the subject is the Khazar origin of Ashkenazi, the Ashkenazi Jews. And of course, this is a subject that we in identity are familiar with. But uh, in order to broadcast this to the rest of the world, that's why we do these shows. All right, so this is BibleRays.com. And it's part two. I was not able to find part one. So I'm just going to do part two. Maybe we can find part one later. The Khazar origin of the Ashkenazim. Okay, so everybody in identity knows that the Jews are not Israelites. They're not Shemites. They're not Hebrews. They're not Adamites. They are a completely different species, which was conceived in the garden when Nachash and the fallen angel Gadrel seduced Eve and produced Cain. And that's when the curse of the two bloodlines was created. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. I will place enmity between these two bloodlines. And you can trace the bloodlines very easily. The the bloodline of Adam through Seth is given in the Bible. Even in the New Testament, the, the book of Luke traces the entire bloodline from Adam down to Yahshua Messiah. That's the bloodline of Adam through Seth. The bloodline of Cain you have to dig through the scriptures to find that out. However, my book, The Great Impersonation, has done all that work for you. <laughs> so all you have to do is go to Money Tree Publishing and order the book there, moneytreepublishing.com. The Great Impersonation, How the Antichrist Had Deceived the Whole World, $30 plus postage, if you please. Okay, it used to be available for like 10 bucks on Amazon, but uh, since sales have increased in the last few months, Amazon has taken that book down. So you can't get the uh, Kindle version of it anymore. But here, uh, this is going to be, in essence, and I talk about the Ashkenazim and the Sephardics at great length within the pages of the Great Impersonation. So let's get somebody else's take on this. And he starts out with a quotation from Micah, oh, sorry, Malachi 2, 11 and 12, saying, 
Judah hath married the daughter of a strange god. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this. <laughs> okay. Uh, another command against race mixing, folks. All right. We marry the daughters of strange gods. That's every other race, practically. And, of course, even the people of our own race, such as the Slavs and the Greeks, who are not of the house of Shem, who are not Hebrews, but are of Japheth. Nevertheless, they are our kinsmen, and we are permitted to intermarry with them because they are of the same race. They are strangers of the same race, and the Hebrew word for strangers of the same race is ger, G-E-R, which I'm positive the word German, uh, spoken as German today, indicates kinsmen, you know, Lundsman, kinsmen of the same race. So the, uh, the author states, Modern Jews are essentially divided into two major categories, ethnically and culturally, Sephardim and Ashkenazim. Now, it's debatable whether you want to call them a race or not, because they are not a pure race. They are a hybrid species. So, Yahshua refers to them as vipers <laughs> in the New Testament, and as, well, the synagogue of Satan, Revelation 2.9 and 3.9. And a brood of vipers, he calls them. A brood a breed, a, a, a race-mixed breed is what they really are. So they're not a pure race, but uh, they carry their genetic material down with them through the ages, and then they like to spread it around, especially with white people. They like to uh, have their, their fun with white women and produce hybrid offspring. But let's continue. The former are primarily of Spanish origin, so they say. The name Sephardim being derived from Sepharad, the Hebrew word for Spain. Now, actually, the word Sepharad is older than that. It goes back to the territory of Sephar, Sepharveim, in the Old Testament, which was a suburb of Babylon, because we're talking about the Babylonian origin of these Jews. And these, these Jews existed in the days of Christ, so the they had to have existed before Spain was created. And Spain was not inhabited by these people until the Jerusalem temple was destroyed. And they fled the wrath of the Romans. So they migrated across the Mediterranean, the north face of Africa, and the southern face of uh, Europe, until they eventually wound up in Spain. That is the true origin of the Sephardics. They did not originate in Spain. And I wonder if this author... Uh, even gets into the, they had to have a prehistory. They didn't just spring into existence in Spain. But this is the Jewish fable. And so this author is repeating that Jewish fable. So let's continue. The former are of primarily Spanish origin. No, they are of Sephardic origin. They are Babylonian origin. The name Sephardim being derived from Sepharad, the Hebrew word for Spain, and are, actually it was Tarshish. It was called Tarshish in the Bible. And are likely the closest to actual Semitic Jews that can be established. They, they are indeed the closest because the Ashkenazim does not have any Hebrew, Shemitic, 
or even Adamic blood whatsoever. The Sephardics are actually descended from Esau. Esau, who, who Esau himself was a Adamite, but he did not produce any Adamite children. He married into the Hittites of the Canaanite tribe. Therefore, he merged his bloodline with that of the bloodline of Cain. Okay, let's continue. And it says, they were expelled from Spain toward the beginning of the 16th century and immigrated to the eastern Mediterranean and Balkans. Well, they, they wound up in Holland. That's where they set up shop. As late as 1960s, the Sephardic Jews numbered only about 500 million, oh, I'm sorry, 500,000, compared with the Ashkenazim of the same period, estimated at approximately 12 million. Okay, so that the Ashkenazim are a much greater population. In defining the origins of the Ashkenazim, Alan Brooks states that, quote, the geographic location of the Ashkenaz, based on references in the Torah, may be centered around southern Russia, Armenia, and Asia Minor. The Ashkenoi, Aske or Askai, were the people also known as Phrygians or Mycians, Meshech. Well, that's interesting. I wasn't aware of that linguistic connection. I'm going to have to print this out and double-check all this. Uh, that, if that's true, that's very good information. Some historians claim that the name Ashkenaz applies exclusively to German Jews. However, more recent evidence shows that they had immigrated from the southern regions of Russia and western Asia and Asia Minor, that is the Hittite area, folks. That's Hittite area. That region clearly identified as the location and origin of the ancient Khazars. There you go. Man, it's great that this information is getting out. It helps to wake people up and get them ready for our message, which, of course, is Christian identity. So the people are waking up. Yeah, Lily, Esau was a race hater. He despised his own birthright. He was the elder brother and would have inherited the birthright had he not despised his birthright and sold it to Jacob for a mess of pottage. It's his fault. He didn't have to sell it to, to Jacob. Or maybe it was a persuasion. Maybe if, maybe Jacob said to Esau, if you don't sell me your birthright, I'm going to shoot you with this hypodermic needle and destroy your DNA. Maybe that's what it was, persuasion. No, he didn't even try persuasion. He said, just told Esau here, I just made this mess of pottage. And, and Esau said, I am faint. I'm about to die of hunger. Let me have some of that some of that pottage, that uh, red lentil soup. And Jacob said, okay, well, here, why don't you, uh, before I give you this uh, bowl of soup, why don't you sell me your birthright? He just said, okay. That's all there was to that. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, he, he, J- Jacob was not the bad guy for proposing that bargain. Esau did not have to accept the bargain, folks. 
In defining the origins of the Ashkenazim, Alan Brooks states that, quote, the geographic location of the Ashkenaz, based on references in the Torah, as I just repeated, is, you know, well, we know that area known as Kazaria. Most of us are familiar with that uh, area. Okay. That region clearly identified as the location and origin of the ancient Khazars. The name originally indicated Iranians and was later given as the name of the god of Meshech. Moscow. Men Ashkenaos. Men Ashkenaos. Quote, it should also be pointed out, Brooks adds, that Ashkenaz did not become a definite Jewish designation for Germany until the 11th century. Well, it never became a designation for Germany, although it may have been designated as such by the British Israel movement, who was financed by the Rothschilds, who pretend that the Jews are Judah and pretend that the Germans are Assyrians. That's been the argument of the British Israelites for quite a long time, but we know better. Quote, According to the explanation by the Talmud, writes Hugo Freiherr, that's German for Freeman, Ashkenaz thus means a country near the Black Sea between Ararat and the Caucasus, within the original region of the Khazar Empire. This, again, is precisely the geographic locality of the Khazarian Empire, the original Khazarian Empire before they moved north. They were driven north by the Arabs, by the Muslims. The Talmudic observation is abetted by scripture, which names Ashkenaz as descending not from Shem, but from Japheth through Gomer, and whose uncles were Magog and Tubal. Oh man, we're getting too close to Gog and Magog. (laughs) Remember this morning, Michael and I on Bloodlines talked about the Rothschilds having the two statues of Gog and Magog paraded through the city of London on November 11th every year. Why are they worshiping Gog and Magog? Ashkenaz, alternate spelling uh, Ashenaz, is mentioned in but one scripture other than 1 Chronicles 6.1, which is only another reference to the genealogy as descending from Japheth. In the book of Jeremiah, the prophet, God announces that Israel is to call upon other nations as allies in bringing in his judgments against Babylon. Among those allies who are not part of Israel or Judah, and therefore could not be numbered as Jews or Judahites, is Ashkenaz. See Jeremiah 51.27. I think he has the analysis of Jeremiah 51.27 wrong. Let me go there. Let's read it. See what it actually says. Because anybody who assumes that the Jews are Judah is going to misread Scripture. So, I'm at chapter 51. Okay. The, and we, we actually, there were no allies to Judah to defeat Babylon. The Judahites who went to Babylon were taken there as captives, and they were let loose, they were set free by the Medes and Persians. 
They were not our allies. They just set us free. Okay, so let's let's uh, jump back to verse 34 and see how this reads. Nebuchadnezzar, or Rezer, in this case there's an R, the king of Babylon hath devoured me. Jeremiah is speaking for all Israel here, all, all Judah actually. He hath crushed me. He hath made me an empty vessel. He hath swallowed me up like a dragon. He hath filled his belly with my delicates. He hath cast me out. Verse 35, The violence done to me and to my flesh be upon Babylon. Shall the inhabitant of Zion say, And my blood upon the inhabitants of Chaldea shall Jerusalem say. Okay, they're going to have to pay. Verse 36, Therefore thus saith Yahweh, Behold, I will plead thy cause, and take vengeance for thee, and I will dry up her sea, and make her springs dry. Is that not what has happened to Babylon? Verse 37, And Babylon shall become heaps, a dwelling place for dragons, and astonishment, and an hissing without an inhabitant. They shall roar together like lions. They shall yell as lions whelps. Okay, so yeah, I think the author of the article reading from is got, misplaced the context somewhat because these people were not allied with Judah to fight against Babylon or to be liberated from Babylon by them. The Medes and Persians simply conquered Babylon. And during the rule of the Persians, we made a deal with them to let us go, to let Judah go and go back to Jerusalem. So there's no question that they were not allied with us. We just petitioned them to set us free. Set my people free. Okay? So... Okay, so the, the, we don't need any allies. In fact, that, that whole concept is forbidden by Yahweh. We're not supposed to make allies of other nations to make war against certain nations. That is perfectly forbidden in Scripture. We are only to rely on Yahweh. If we rely on other nations, those, those battles will fail. Okay? He keeps us close to his vest. We are not to make allegiances with non-Israelite nations especially, and we don't need him. In fact, even uh, as uh, Dan and I were reading yesterday in Second Chronicles, the, the king of Judah, I forget what his name is now, might have been Joash, who w- wanted to make a treaty with the ten northern tribes. But they were, they were paganized tribes. And the prophet told Joash, hey, no, you don't make, you don't make alliances with pagans. Even if they're Israelites, you don't do that. Yahweh is your strength, not military alignments with other nations. Okay, so this author doesn't realize that uh, you know you, you can't do that. The Bible expressly forbids that. Okay, so let's continue. UNESCO. Ooh, he's very very close. The United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization published a series of booklets entitled The Race Question in Modern Science, in which one of the authors, Harry Shapiro, oh no, oh no, 
Uh, but this is going to be a uh, what is it? A, a kerfuffle? <laughs> a kerfuffle? A boondoggle? A, a, a Jewish lie? Let's hear what he has to say. Mr. Shapiro, of course, the United Nations is a Jewish organization from top to bottom. And he says, the wide range of variation between Jewish populations in their physical characteristics and the diversity of the gene frequencies of their blood groups render any unified racial classification for them a contradiction in terms. As I said, they're not a race. They are a breed, a half-breed nation, multi-breed nation. For although modern racial theory admits some degree of polymorphism or variation within a racial group, it does not permit distinctly different groups measured by its own criteria of race to be identified as one. So you can't say that the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim are one single entity. So far, this is good. To do so would make the biological purposes of racial classification futile and the whole procedure arbitrary and meaningless. How long ago was this stated? This had to be really long ago because the, the Jewish posture today is to deny that the, the race even exists. And we're probably blended into one brown man, a UN brown man, a statue of the United Nations brown man sits in front of the building. Okay. Despite the evidence, efforts continue to be made to somehow segregate the Jews as a distinct racial entity. Okay, so, so first he starts out by saying, well, you can't differentiate between uh, Sephardics and Ashkenazim very well. It makes it di- Well, because we just stated, didn't we just tell you that a lot of these Sephardic uh, bloodlines, namely the Hittite, were in Turkey, and they were already there, and then they were chased out of Turkey up into northern Europe where Ashkenaz was. And uh, this author actually states that Ashkenaz was already there in northern Turkey. So anyway, yeah, kerfuffle, uh, nonsense coming from this Jew. Okay, so he starts out by saying, oh, well, oh, I guess what his argument is, well, you can't even say that the Jews are a single race. How can you say there are races at all? That's the gist of his argument. Let's continue. Thus, attempting to claim the existence of a race of Jews has been proven to be an anthropological impossibility. Yes, we agree. They are not a race. Though their God, uh, oh, though their God consistently warned them against intermingling themselves amongst the non-Judahite races, their misogynistic tendencies are well documented. No, they're not. They picked up, they picked up the habits from Canaanites, and there must have been some race mixing going on among the ten northern tribes, but really not much. But the reason why Yahweh kicked the ten northern tribes out of there was to prevent them from race mixing anymore. That's why we became the Caucasian people. Anyway, the Jewish explanation was always false and has resulted in their complete erasure as a distinct and genetic people. Well, maybe that's true of the Jews, although they still retain the genetics of the Hittite, Canaanite, Kenite breed, the Edomite breed. They still contain those genetics. There's no denying that. But, of course, this Jew will not admit 
that they descend from Esau, he still claims that the Jews stem from Judah. No, that's not true, folks. When, inevitably, there was mixing of Western European and Khazarian Jews, there was, actually, there has really been not very much of that. The Ashkenazim and the Sephardim uh, really are two different breeds of Jew. There was a notable difference between the educational levels of the two Jewish subcultures. The Khazars greatly admired their vastly less numerous but far more learned Western German-speaking brethren and quickly adopted their language, education, and cultural practices. This resulted also in an assimilation of their other talents in the area of economics, business, and things politic. Okay, well, they're admitting that the Jews are experts at economics, business, and politics. But they really weren't that intelligent. The mere mere fact that they dominate the enrollments of the universities here in America and probably Europe as well means that they're highly educated. Yes, and there are two Jewish subcultures and they still exist. Okay. Quote, the Khazars were not descended from the tribes, unquote, says Kessler. Yes, that's absolutely right. But as we have seen, they shared a certain cosmopolitanism and other social characteristics with their co-religionists. Yeah, because they're part Hittite. And who were the two women that Esau married? Who were the first two women that Esau married? They were the two Hittite women. Somewhere in the historical roots of the Ashkenazi Khazars, there incubated a desire to possess a national Jewish homeland. Yeah, that's called Zionism. That desire expressed itself in the form of a messianic movement in the 12th century Khazaria that took on the texture of a, quote, Jewish crusade, whose goal was the forcible subjugation of Palestine. A Khazar Jew named Solomon ben Duji. D-U-J-I, instigated the movement and began an international correspondence with all the Jews of surrounding nations. Huh. Solomon Ben-Duji. Never heard of him. It seems that Ben-Duji was possessed of messianic delusions of his own. (laughs) Yeah, called demons. In that he claimed that the, quote, the time had come in which God would gather the Jews, his people from all lands to Jerusalem, the holy city, and that Solomon ben Duji was Elijah and his son, the Messiah. Footnote number 66. <laughs> would you believe? Footnote number 66. Now, of course, the Jews today are trying to rebuild the temple. Which, of course, would, if they do that and start practicing animal sacrifice again, would be all the proof the world needs that the Jews do not accept Yahshua Messiah as the Messiah. Because why why do you think Yahweh destroyed the temple? So that the Jews couldn't practice animal sacrifice. The Jews had taken over the Temple Mount and they, you know, they were still at that point in time allowing Levites and the uh, 24 courses, of whom Zechariah was one, and uh, 
John the Baptist was the son of Zechariah, which probably makes John the Baptist a Levite. So up until that time, those ritual sacrifices by the true Levites and the true Judites were still being carried out. The Edomite Jews were simply imposters who took over the Sanhedrin, and they were primarily among the scribes and Pharisees. Okay, so they're quoting Arthur Kessler. Let's see if they understand Kessler correctly. So, so in the late 1960s, Ashkenazi Jews numbered some 11 million, about 84% of the world's Jewish population. At times, Arthur Kessler, in his broad and extensive treatment of the subject, appears as a Jew himself to wrestle with the glaring contradiction that the Jews, who have no genetic or true ethnic identity, are entitled to a land they have never, ever, by any right of descent, owned or possessed, and whose ancestors have never occupied. Whoa! Now that's too much truth for most people to digest in one hearing. So let me repeat this. At times, Arthur Kessler, in his broad and extensive treatment of this subject, appears as a Jew himself to wrestle with the glaring contradiction that the Jews, who have no genetic or true ethnic identity, are entitled to land they have never by any right of descent owned or possessed, and whose ancestors have never occupied. And whose ancestors are neither Hebrews, Shemites, Israelites, or Judahites. Then, claiming to be the state of Israel created by the United Nations fiat, they arbitrarily removed that land from the possession of those who have legitimately owned and occupied it for thousands of years. Mr. Kessler claims that such right is not based on the hypothetical origins of the Jewish people, nor on the mythological covenant with Abraham with God. Of course, that's not mythological. It's just you got the wrong people. It is based on international law, i.e. on the United Nations decision in 1947 to partition Palestine, actually declared May 14, 1948. Unquote. So, Mr. Kessler does know what he's talking about when he said that Palestine was created by United Nations fiat, not by Yahweh. He's correct about that. But, it's obvious to me that Kessler was an atheist. He didn't believe the fables of the rabbis any more than we do. But then he, he uh, jumped to the conclusion that the Bible is fiction because he didn't see his own people as being those, those righteous Israelites who are going to lead the world to an era of peace. No, the Jews have never done any such thing and are incapable of doing any such thing. So, guess what, folks? The the, what do you call it? The atheistic Jews are more intelligent than the religious Jews. Yeah, you shall know them by their fruits. How about it? Okay. Sephar means book, says Nimblehorse. Okay, yeah, the Sepharvam was a district of Babylon. And what book? What book might that be, Nimblehorse? Might that be the Babylonian Talmud? It could, yeah, rotten fruit. <laughs> you shall know them by their rotten fruit. 
Yep, they stole our heritage out from under us. Yes, they did, folks. It's getting better. Yeah, people are beginning to figure this out. Except, what? let me put it this way. Once the general population starts using the word Jew without fear, then you know the Jews are toast. Because we in identity are not afraid of exposing the Jew, the international Jew, as Henry Ford tried to do. Okay? They still had too much power then. But because now, here, let, let me give us this analysis. The Jews wore out the saints of Britain by creating a far-flung Jewish empire of merchandise, which was not really British at all. It was Kaikish, a Kaikish worldwide empire run by the British East India Company, and then the British West India Company. This was totally controlled by Jewish bankers, and they threatened the royal family with you know harm if they did not participate. They utilized threats, intimidation, bribery, blackmail, and every scheme under the sun to get the British lords and they, well, first of all, they cut off Charles I's head because he had to be eliminated because he would not approve of any such thing. And then they had Charles II brought up with Jewish tutors or cucks, uh, you know, uh, what was it, uh, Calvinistic cucks, Calvinist cucks, to bring him up with the idea that the Jews are God's chosen people. So he would sign on to the Bank of England Charter in 1694. So this is all Jewish. It wasn't, the British Empire, the far-flung British Empire, was not British at all. It was always Jewish. So let's continue. The apparent conflict in Kessler's mind becomes evident in an apparent contradiction as he concludes that the faith of Judaism transformed the Jews of the diaspora into a pseudo-nation without any of the attributes and privileges of nationhood, held together loosely by a system of traditional beliefs based on racial and historical premises which turn out to be illusory. (laughs) Yes! Succinctly stated, he maintains that the idea of a Jewish national identity is based on an illusion created by a history that does not exist. Well, yeah, it's the invention of the Talmud. I wonder if Kessler has any familiarity with the Talmud. I would suspect that he did. But he was one of those remonstrant Jews who turned against his own people because he could see the hypocrisy of it all. Next, it will be shown that the influx of what we now know to be Jews of Khazarian origin constituted the first invasion of Gog from the land of Magog. That's what we were saying this morning, folks, as prophesied in biblical scripture. However, yeah, well, I mean, Palestine really still belongs to us. It was liberated by the British in 1917. I'm trying to think of the general's name, General Allenby, 
was the one, the British general, who liberated Palestine from the Turks. So very quickly, the British had made a deal with the Palestinians that once the the Turks <laughs> were kicked out, then the Kikes would no 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 the, then the, then the Palestinian Arabs would get that country back. That was the deal that the British made with the Palestinian Arabs. Of course, the Kikes stabbed the, the uh, Arabs in the back. But they had to stab the Germans at the back first because because the, the Germans still had control of Turkey or we were allied with Turkey during World War One, but the Germans refused to turn that territory over to the Kikes. So the Kikes had to plot and scheme to get America involved in World War One, so that the Germans couldn't possibly win, and that's what happened. And so the uh, the treaty, the Paris Peace Conference Treaty, gave the blame for World War One to the Germans, who were the last ones to get involved, and stripped Germany bare of all their possessions. That's how that worked out. So the Germans were actually the most noble and righteous people involved in that war, the last ones to get involved. But yet, the Jewish conference, which was the Paris Peace Treaty, total Jew, totally Jewish conference, put all the blame on Germany. The Jews had staged an attempt to occupy with communism, Germany, just as they did in Russia. They were successful in Russia, but not successful in Germany. But while this attempted coup was taking place in Germany, the Paris Peace Conference was taking place, and Germany was unrepresented at the Paris Peace Conference, were unable to make a case for themselves. The Jews basically stole Germany from Germany, and placed it under subjection of a Jewish fiefdom. Okay? So, it says, the fascinating aspect of it is that, as with virtually all other prophecies, those claiming theological preeminence in their knowledge of Scripture completely missed the fulfillment, just as did the Jews at the first coming of the Messiah. Well, the Jews weren't Judah, so they would never accept the Messiah, and they still won't, because they're still not Judah. But, arguing that this is actually an invasion by Gog and Magog is correct. Let's see if he identifies Gog and Magog with the Soviet Union. Gog, Magog, and the Ashkenazim. It has long been the belief of 20th and now 21st century Christianity that near the end of this world's history as outlined in the Bible, Gog from the land of Magog, defined by those Christians as Russia, the king of the north, would invade the holy land of present-day Israel. World and local ministries of the conservative Christian persuasion spend inordinate amounts of time in attempts to decode such prophecies as found in Ezekiel 38 and 39, Daniel 11 and Revelation 20, and virtually all of them have come to the above-stated conclusion. In most cases, belief, and in fact, that was the belief also of Bertrand Camperet and Dr. Wesley Swift. Because those Jews were in control of Russia in those days, and they could not have foreseen that Russia would turn Orthodox Christian again and would evict the Jews for the most part. 
haven't evicted all of them yet. So anyway, so this he is correct. This is the common assessment of the Christian Zionists and Judeo Christianity in general. Okay. In most cases, belief in the invasion of Israel, Kyrgyzstan, by Russia and the defeat of Antichrist in the subsequent war of Armageddon is accompanied by the idea that there will be a 1,000-year reign of peace after Christ returns to the earth, okay? So this was the exact subject of, of this morning's Bloodline show. Let's see how they handle it here. Representative of this almost universal belief are such as Grant Jeffrey, Tim LaHaye, principal co-author of the Left Behind book series, the Jack Van Impe Ministries, etc., and every televangelist under the sun. Van Impe, a widely known radio and television evangelist, has published volumes of literature on biblical prophecy and much on the matter of Gog and Magog. Quote, When Russia heads south to do battle, now actually, I don't blame the Russians for invading Kyrgyzstan (laughs) if they decide to do so. But Russia is not Gog and Magog. Ashkenazim is the Ashkenazi, the Khazar Jews, with their blood brethren, the Hittites. They are Gog and Magog. But let me start this sentence over. Quote, When Russia heads south to do battle, unquote, writes Van Impe in an article entitled Armageddon, The End or the Beginning, she, it, will be a mighty force as it comes against the Antichrist army with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. Not likely, because Kyrgyzstan is peopled by the same Khazar people <laughs> that is coming from Russia, pseudo-Russia, today. This is the first military wave, he says, of the three-pronged Armageddon campaign mentioned in Daniel 11.40, when the king of the south, Egypt, and her Arab federation, and the king of the north, Russia, begin their pincer movement. Ezekiel 38.16 says, And thou shalt come up against my people Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days, and I will bring thee against my land, that the heathen may know me, when I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, before their eyes, unquote. Once Russia has made her move, the Antichrist will be furious. He will enter the glorious land Israel. Now, wait a minute. Why will the Antichrist be furious if the Jews are Israel? Unless the Jews are Israel. (laughs) That's the only way the Antichrist would be furious, is if the Jews are Israel or pretending to be Israel. Okay? They are the Antichrist. So the Antichrist won't be furious with Russia. Oh, well, maybe he would be if they're attacking Jews, but the Jews aren't Israel. I hope you're not getting too confused, folks. All of this is made boot, actually, made of none effect. By the mere fact that it is in these two chapters, Ezekiel 38 and 39 where Israel is described as a land of unwalled cities. That does not describe Palestine, ladies and gentlemen, saints of the Most High Yahweh. That does not describe Palestine. 
that only describes America. America is virtually the only nation on the first face of the earth that has never had walled cities, except where the Jews have settled in their gated cities, like in Manhattan and Miami and California, L.A. and San Francisco, etc. They even have gated cities near downtown Chicago, full of Jews and in the suburbs surrounding Chicago. I know. I've been there. I've seen them. I've seen the little kikes running around. So, says Van Impe, immediately he situates himself in Jerusalem. No, because Jerusalem is not the land of unwalled cities. Continuing with the article, and we're just about running out of time, so about halfway through, maybe we can pick this up next week with Pastor Martins. In reference to former Russian President Boris Yeltsin and other Russian leaders, Van Impey asked, could one of these above leaders be the Gog of Ezekiel 38.2? No. They're gone. I don't know if Boris Yeltsin was Jewish or not. I don't think he was. But clearly it has been our position throughout that Gog and Magog are the Ashkenazim period, and their brethren, the Turkish kikes. This scriptural perspective of Gog invading Israel from the north at some future time is also largely held by Jewish theologians. For example, in an October 1996 Jerusalem Post article entitled All Agog, columnist Moshe Kohn, K-O-H-N, addresses the subject, quote, The war to end all wars is to be launched against Eretz Israel, by Gog of the land of Magog, chief prince of Meshech and Tuval, as foretold in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, of course, nobody ever talks about the Ashkenazim and the Bolshevik Jews, who are the Ashkenazim, as being Gog and Magog. First of all, the the headquarters of Russia, the seat of government, uh, true Russia, was... Uh, where the czars lived. Okay? St. Petersburg. It wasn't it wasn't Moscow or Meshech in the land of Gog and Magog until the Bolsheviks took over. Then they transferred the seat of government from St. Petersburg, renaming it to, what, uh, Lenin, Leningrad or something like that, and uh, relocating it to Moscow the seat of true Meshach and Tubal, right? As foretold in Ezekiel 38 and 39. You have to know history to understand the Bible, to understand these prophecies, folks. Quote, he says, We don't know what or who Magog, Meshach, Tubal, and Gog are. We only know that Gog and his allies are to come down on Eretz Israel, true Israel, I would say, and that is America and Europe, because all of Europe and America, and many other nations are descendants of true Israel. We are being invaded already by the same Gog and Magog, otherwise known as the House of Rothschild. Gog will then, oh, God, rather, G-O-D, not G-O-G, 
will then destroy the invaders, and I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will not hide my face from them anymore. Well, the Jews claim that God has never hidden his face from them. But he has hidden his face from us. Why? Because of our disobedience. Remember, Peter says that judgment begins in the house of Jacob. And we are being judged by COVID for not paying attention to our scriptures and believing the lies of the Jews and the televangelists. That's all you need to know about that. Yes, and, and Jews can't repent of their sins because they don't believe they have ever sinned, <laughs> right? Evil does not repent. Only good can repent of the evil we have either mistakenly or deliberately done, okay? Continuing, now he goes to Revelation sixteen sixteen. quote, the New Testament also mentions the Gog-Magog War, in Revelation 20, as the final battle between the rulers of the earth led by Satan, that is, by the Ashkenazi Jews, and the forces, oh, okay, and the forces of God, between these two forces. In that version, this war may also be what is known in Christian tradition as the Battle of Armageddon. Yes, indeed, a place mentioned in Revelation 16:16. 16, 16, unquote. Now, getting back to the author's narrative here, got a bunch of bullet points. I should only be able to cover two or three of these here. How some historians view the origins of Gog and Magog. Quote, Flavius Josephus claimed that Magog founded those that from him were named Magogites, but who are by the Greeks called Scythians. Well, that's a misidentification. Well, actually, let's put it this way. The Scythians did occupy that territory, but they moved west before the Hittites and the Mongol originating Khazars moved in. Okay, So our people, the Scythians, moved out and went west and north into Greece, into Europe, into Russia, into the Slavic countries, etc., along the rivers before the Ashkenazi Khazars moved in. Okay, that's, so this is, since since Josephus is writing in the days of what, 100 AD, we could easily see how he could make such a mistake. But you have to be a really close observer of history to make this distinction here. Bullet point number two. Josephus lived and died a half millennium before the founding of the Khazar kingdom, and therefore could not connect those in the region of the Scythians with the with the Khazars. Yeah, yeah, as I just said, the Khazars really didn't exist yet. The Catholic Encyclopedia observes that, quote, Josephus and others identify Magog with Scythia, but in antiquity this name was used to designate vaguely any northern population, unquote. So, you mean the Catholic Encyclopedia actually got something right? Really? I have to write a note to the Pope and tell him, wow, you got something right. Bullet point number three. However, Josephus does have an interesting comment on Tubal, 
the brother of Magog and Meshech, which sounds as if it were tailored specifically for their descendants. This has got to be good, folks. I can't wait. In the Khazars, quote, Tubal exceeded all men in strength and was very expert and famous in martial performances, unquote. Yeah, the Khazars were noted as one of the most vicious warmongering people ever. Wow. Fantastic. Vasiliev, bullet point number four. In the Goths in the Crimea, quotes from the life by Saint, from, yeah, the life by Saint Abo of Tbilisi, Tbilisi, who claimed that, quote, the Khazars were savage sons of Magog who had no religion whatever. <laughs> yeah, before the Jews moved in, before the uh, Hittites moved in. Although recognizing the being of a soul god. That's interesting. Bullet point number five. References made by Rabbi Petakiah in his travelogue, Sibuv HaOlam, concerning the conversion of the King Mulan to Judaism, makes mention that the kingdom was that of ancient Meshech. That's where we get the word Moscow from, folks. Bullet point number six. Much in harmony with biblical prophecy, prophetic terminology, Kessler writes that the Persians and Byzantines referred to Khazaria as the kingdom of the north, with whom nearly all modern theologians connect Gog and Magog. Number seven. Ibn Fadlan, the noted Arab traveler of the 700s, made the comment in his journals that, quote, the Khazars and their king are all Jews, of course, by conversion. The Bulgars and their neighbors are subject to him. They treat him with worshipful, worshipful obedience. Some are of the opinion that Gog and Magog are the Khazars, all right? Boy, are we getting close to the truth or what? Number eight, Westphalian monk Christian Drutmar of Aquitania wrote a Latin treatise, Expositio in Evangelium Matai, in which he reports that there exists a people under the sky in regions where no Christians can be found, whose name is Gog and Magog, and who are Huns, and probably had dominion over the Huns. Among them is one called Gazari, namely the Khazars, who are circumcised and observe Judaism in its entirety. Unquote. We're getting closer and closer to the Jewish kingdom of Khazaria, the conversion of them to Judaism, folks. One more point. Number nine, after a century of warfare, Kessler notes the Arab chroniclers, quote, obviously had no great sympathy for the Khazars, nor had the Georgian or Armenian scribes, whose countries of a much older culture had been repeatedly devastated by Khazar horsemen. A Georgian chronicle echoing an ancient tradition identifies them with the hosts of Gog and Magog, quote, wild men with hideous faces, and the manners of wild beasts, eaters of blood, unquote. 
That must be where the Hungarians and the Germans came up with blood sausage. Which the Germans still eat today, right? Pork eaters they are, right? We didn't break them of that habit. Pork eaters all over Europe, okay? So, folks, this is a fascinating article, one of the best I've ever read on who Gog and Magog really are. Most of them get it terribly wrong, but as this author here states, the Judeo-Christians have this wrong. So, folks, thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh, pass the ammunition. The truth is coming out, finally. Praise be Yahweh and Yahshua and the Holy Spirit so that we may all be blessed as the truth comes out because the truth is our armor. Put on the armor of Yahweh, says Paul. That's the only thing that will protect us. And, of course, being righteous in his laws. Amen to that. See you all next time. Bye-bye, everybody.